So the passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at and opening up is back in Matthew chapter 3. And we're looking at verse 17. So just 17 in particular of Matthew 3. Do any of you do your Christmas shopping still in an actual physical shop? Well, the last time you were in a shop, perhaps you heard something over the loud speaker. Maybe someone saying, clean up on aisle seven, please. Or perhaps, could a member of staff come to the customer service desk? Or even, this is the one I hear all the time, till number three please. And then that changes and it's now till three and four and it jumps around anyway. But do you listen to those when they come on and you you hear them? Do you listen to them? I guess for most of us, we kind of drown that out, don't we? But here in Matthew 3, verse 17, we have God speaking from heaven, if you like, on the world's loudspeaker for all to hear. And what God says here, we need to all listen to very carefully. Because this is a very rare occurrence. There are only a few times in the Bible that God speaks directly, publicly, audibly from heaven to man. I was trying to figure it out. And actually the last time in the Bible, as far as I could tell, that God spoke in this way from heaven is in Exodus 20, when he gives those 10 commandments. So that tells us immediately that this is very important. What God is saying here, we need to listen to carefully. But it's also important because this message from heaven is repeated three times in the Gospels. It's here in Matthew, it's in Mark, and it's in Luke. This particular account, this particular event, repeated three times. And as we've learned many times as a church, when God repeats something, All of Scripture is important, but when God repeats something, it means it must be of super importance that we listen. Well, to understand what God is saying here, we have to put it into the context of history. We have to put it in the context of the rest of the Bible's history. And so my first point tonight is, number one, a Savior promised. A Savior promised. What God is saying in verse 17 from heaven, it's part of that that bigger story of history that begins right at the start of the Bible. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. They rebel against their maker. And as a result of their sin, their relationship with God is ruined. They're cut off from God, in a sense. And that world that God had said was very good when he first made it, it becomes twisted and deformed, cursed by God as judgment on men, on mankind. And now death and suffering and disease and evil come into God's very good world and distort it, ruin it. But with all this doom and gloom at the start of the Bible, God gives a promise that leaves us with hope A promise that a saviour was going to come one day and destroy the evil in this world. 
And so we continue to read through the Old Testament and we see there is more and more evil that comes out of the heart of man. More and more that is done, that is against God's law. There is more darkness, there is more evil. But at the same time, as we read through our Old Testament, through the shadows, the types, the tabernacle, the sacrifices and the prophets, God reveals more and more of who this Savior would be. The first thing we learn as we look at the big picture view of the Old Testament about this Savior is, first of all, that he was going to come to restore the broken relationship that we have with God. He was going to bring peace between man and God. But the only way he could do this is if our sin that separates us from God, that rebellion against God that is in the heart of all of us, and the way we have lived, that sin has to be dealt with. And the only way it can be dealt with is if this Savior pays for our sin by suffering and dying in our place. But he can't pay for our sin if he has his own sin to pay for. So this Savior has to be perfect. He has to be sinless. And that's why in the Old Testament, those sacrifices of lambs and goats and bulls, it was so important. They were spotless. that They were perfect, as we were hearing about just earlier on. Why? Because it was pointing forward to the one who would be sinlessly perfect so that he could pay for our sin. And yet, and here's the problem, here's the conundrum. In order for him to pay for our sin, it would not be enough for this Savior to be just a human. Because in the sight of God, sin, all sin, is so bad that it requires an eternal punishment. And therefore, the one who would pay for our sin would have to be of infinite value himself in order to deal with our sin and be enough of a sacrifice for us. And so a thousand years go by, 2,000 years, 3,000, 4,000, maybe more. And prophets, priests, kings, and other people come upon the world stage as described in the Bible and in other places. But none of them are enough. None of them are good enough, righteous enough, valuable enough in the sight of God to be our saviour. And that's where chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel opens. After all these years of waiting for that promise to come true, this man called John the Baptist, we were hearing about him a little bit earlier on today. He comes onto the scene. He comes into Israel. He calls the Jewish people to repent. In essence, his message in chapter 3 is this. Get ready. Your promised Savior is about to arrive. A saviour promised. Number two, a saviour revealed. Who is this saviour? How can anyone be enough to deal with our sin? Well, John himself, John the Baptist himself, 
gives us a hint of who this Saviour might be. We're hearing this morning about how special John the Baptist was, that he was this person who was going to be the prophet of all prophets, the one who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah to bring joy and gladness to God's people by proclaiming the message of the promised Saviour. This prophet of prophets, this great uh, prophet, yet in verse 11 and 12, he says this, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John is saying, I'm nobody. I'm nobody compared to the one who is about to arrive. And then Jesus comes to John. And Jesus is baptized. And then God speaks from heaven. God the Father speaks in verse 17 and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Who is this Son? Well, we had our other reading, didn't we? We had our other reading from the Gospel of John. Like John says in verse 14 of that reading, did you spot it? He said, this son is the word who was in the beginning with God. And he was God. All things were made through him. The prophet Isaiah tells us a little bit about who this son is as well. In Isaiah 17, verse 14, he says that the one who's going to come, the Savior who's going to come, is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. And you remember the tabernacle? We were looking at the tabernacle over the summer, weren't we? That big tent that went into the, was, was set up in the center of the, um, the camp of the Israelites. And it's a picture of the fact that that is God's tent, but it's a picture of the fact that God one day will dwell with his people. We could look at many other places in Scripture. And this idea of the Son of God is such a deep one. We can't truly get to grips with all that it means. We'd be here forever. It runs throughout the entirety of Scripture. It's a lifetime and more worth of study in understanding who God the Son is. But that reading from John simply explains the basics. That this is the one who has existed in eternity past. This is the self-existent one. This is the one from whom all life comes. This is the creator of heaven and earth. That this Jesus standing here, God the Father is saying, this is my son. It's God. It's the great I am. But as we're going to discover every Christmas, he's not simply God. He is that. And that is a huge thing to, to fathom and get our minds around. But even more, amazingly, we find in the Scriptures that this one who is God is also man. We're going to think over the next few weeks about Christmas, aren't we? And how this Jesus came into the world as a child, as a little baby, was born into the world like other human beings and grew up like other men. And as we read through the Gospels, we find that he suffered the trials 
and the pain and the tribulation of living in a broken and a fallen world. He is God, but he is also fully and truly man. But in this message from heaven, we find that there is one difference, one essential difference between this Son of God and us in his humanity. It's that second part. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Isaiah 42 puts it like this. God speaking through Isaiah the prophet. He says, this is my elect one. This is the one that I have chosen to be the savior of the world. And in him, my soul delights. In other words, here is one, at long last, who pleases God by the way that he lives. Adam failed to live as God called him to live. But here is one who will live as God calls us all to live. Perfect in every way, just as is needed. So in short, what is being said here in this passage, it's as if God is saying from heaven, here is my answer to a broken and sin-cursed world. Here is my answer to the need of simple human beings. It's my son, the maker of heaven and earth, but now fully and truly human as well. His perfect obedience and suffering and death will be enough to pay for the worst of sins. Here is my lamb. Here is my solution. Here is how God and man are reconciled. What amazing grace and mercy and love is shown here. That word beloved, we look through scripture, how much meaning is behind that word. This is the one who is more precious to God than anything else in the world. This is the one who is more precious to God than a trillion spinning galaxies in space. All the wealth of the world. This is one who is worth more than every other human being who has ever lived or ever will live put together. And yet God says, here is my son. Here is my solution. Here is the one that I am offering up to be your sin bearer. And this is the only one who is enough. Who can take away our sin. Because he is perfect. He is perfect and sinless, and yet at the same time, he is valuable enough to cover and pay for all our sin. His precious blood alone can take away our sin. Savior revealed. Thirdly, a promise kept. A promise kept. The Apostle Paul, writing to his friend Timothy, says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 13, he says, speaking of God, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Paul, the, the Apostle, is saying this, that for God, God would have to stop being God in order to break his word. It's impossible. It's not going to happen. And here we have the great 
example, the great illustration of this truth that God always does what he says he's going to do. All those years have passed. Has God forgotten his promises? Did God not really mean what he said? He did mean what he said. And he says, here is my son. Here is the answer to all those promises. And here is the answer to the great problem that we as men and women face. Our broken relationship with God. Here is my lamb. Now this is really important for you and I. Because the faithfulness of God, it proven here, is what our hope as Christians is built on. God has promised that if we trust, put all our hope in this Savior, in this Jesus Christ, then he will forgive all our sin. All our guilt is taken away forever. And he will change us from the inside out and keep us safely all the way home to heaven. That's God's promise to you and I. And here he proves that he keeps his promises. He's made another promise to us, hasn't he? We were thinking a little about it, a bit about it earlier. He's promised that one day this Jesus will come back. That one day he will come back to restore this world, to make all things new. That all the pain, all the suffering, all the distress, all the evil in this world will be taken away. And God's people will live with him in a perfect world. With joy unspeakable. That's God's promise to you. And you know, I think sometimes we look at our lives, we go through the, the everyday and we start to not really believe it anymore. But it's true. It's true. God, as we were hearing this morning, doesn't work according to our schedule. But God always keeps his promises. So we need to take heart. But also this is one of the scary things about God. This is one of the frightening things about God. That he always does exactly what he says he will do. Because he has also said that when Jesus returns, he will judge the living and the dead. And on that day, you and I will either get justice or grace. And I, for one, know that I do not want justice. Which will it be for you? He's going to do it. He keeps every word he makes. A promise kept. Number four, God's glory displayed. God's glory displayed. Verse 17. Actually, just looking at verse 16 there as well. We, we read this. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
Why did the heavens rend, the Holy Spirit come down, and the Father speak these words? What was the point? Why is it here in Scripture recorded for us? There are many other events from the life of Jesus, John tells us at the end of his gospel, that were not recorded for us. So why this one? What is God doing? Well, this would certainly have been a great comfort to Jesus in the coming days. We were thinking recently about the next chapter in Matthew, about this uh, temptation of, of Satan. And you can think forward to the different trials and the suffering and then his death upon the cross for us. These words would have been so precious to Jesus, wouldn't they? To remember those words he heard here in verse 17. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But there's more to it than that. Turn just briefly, just, just quickly to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter gives us the answer. What's going on here? What is God the Father doing? What is the Holy Spirit doing as well? 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, just a couple of verses. Um, verses 16 to 17. So Peter is talking, he's, he's writing to, to Christians, and he's telling them at this point where the gospel, where the good news of Jesus came from. And he's saying, we didn't make it up. This wasn't our idea. Verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, Peter is actually talking about a later event in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 17, where he and, and John and James go onto that mountain and they see that the, the veil is pulled back and they see the glory of Christ revealed. But if we were to read that account, we would see that God the Father says and does the same thing he does here in Matthew 3, Matthew 3, 17. And so Peter is saying that this message from God what is happening here is that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are putting God the Son on display. They're glorifying and honoring our Lord Jesus. That's the point. That's the point. Do you know that what God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are doing here, they do throughout the entire Bible. All those all those pictures and all those shadows and types, the Old Testament and the temple and the sacrifices and what the prophets say, if you read through it, you realize they're all pointing forward to Jesus. That's the point. And all through the life of Jesus, we find instances where God is honoring his son. And of course, in the end, he raises him from the dead. Again, pointing to him as the Savior. And then that day of Pentecost, you remember when the Holy Spirit came down upon Christians, what was the result? The good news about Jesus was declared to everyone in Jerusalem. And so it goes on throughout the entire Bible. What the Holy Spirit and, and God the Father are always doing is pointing to the Son. So that in displaying the Son to you and I, through him, 
the glory of God is shown to us. And that's the work that they're still doing today. <coughs> in fact, Paul the Apostle in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, I've been studying that recently, turn to it if you want to, but just, just to say this, you can read it when you get home as well, but Paul says in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, he's saying in effect, the point of everything, the point of creation, the point of the church, the point of God's plan to save a people for himself from their sins, the point of your life and mine is that in everything, Jesus Christ might have the preeminence, that Jesus Christ might be seen to be the greatest, the best, the one worth worshipping, that he is put on display. That's the point of the entire world. That's the point of history itself. That's the point of your life and my life. To know God and make him known in this world. Paul says in another place, in 2 Corinthians 5.15, he tells us that Jesus Christ died for us. Why? So that we might live for him. So this isn't just, in general terms, this is for you as well. God's glory displayed in Jesus Christ. So that raises a big question that we as a church need to be asking all the time. Is Jesus Christ at the center of what we're doing? Are we making much of him? Because if there ever comes a time that we're not, it doesn't matter how many people come here on a Sunday. It doesn't matter if the music is to our liking and we're comfortable with it and it's good. It doesn't matter how much outreach we do to people outside. It doesn't matter if we end up with a fine, plush building somewhere in a perfect position in town with 200 parking spaces. None of it matters. We're doing it all wrong. Is Jesus Christ at the center of our prayers, of our Bible studies? Is he the emphasis of preaching? Because if and whenever he's not, we've got it wrong. We've missed the point. We need to always be asking that question. And it's true for your personal life as well. This week, what was your goal? What was the point of everything that you did in the past week? What will be the goal of next week? I was thinking this through of my own life over the, over the past few days as I was studying this. And Realizing that if our goal in life is anything but Jesus Christ, even if it is good things that we're chasing, if that's the sum total of what we want to achieve with our lives, whether it's to have a nice family, good relationships, to live a life of fun or wealth or recognition, to find out who we are, whatever it is, if it's not Christ, it will end in disappointment, frustration, and ruin. What's your goal? 
What's your goal tomorrow in all that you do? See, that's why Paul says to his friends in uh, Corinthians, whatever you do in all things, glorify Christ. Number five, God's gift to you. We said that all of this is about Christ. It's all about glorifying him. But Christ is also God's gift to you. I'm sure we're going to hear lots about gifts over the next few weeks. But that's because it's true. Jesus Christ is God's precious gift to you. We don't have to search far in the Bible to prove that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But I think sometimes we imagine as Christians that God gave his son to a group of people, to, to, to Christians, to his children. But you are just one figure in a crowd that he's giving his son to. But that's not true. Jesus said in John 10, talking of his, of his, of his uh, children, of those that he shepherds and cares for, the children of God, he says that he knows them by name. He knows their needs. He knows who you are. And then in Revelation, there's that glorious truth revealed, isn't there? Where it says that God has a book. And in his book, since the beginning of time, He's written the names of every one of his children. God knows you. God knew you when he chose to send Jesus into the world to save you. He knew your name. He knew what you would do. He knew what you would become. Jesus came into this world knowing who you were, knowing your sin, knowing everything about you, and coming to save you. This isn't just God's gift in general to, to, to people in this world. This is God's gift to you Personally. And that really matters because we were hearing this morning again, weren't we? That Christians, that God's people are not immune. You don't get away from the pain and the suffering and the disappointments and the loneliness and the trials of this world. We have to go through this valley, don't we? And it's so wonderful to know that God uses those difficulties for his glory. But often when we're going through them, we can't see it, can we? And let's be honest with each other. Often we're tempted when we're suffering in that way, whatever it might be, ill health, pain, whatever. We're tempted to start to think that God maybe doesn't love us, that God's forgotten about us. He doesn't care anymore. Friend, if that's ever you, hold on to these words. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hold on to the truth that God gave his son for you personally. And as Paul says in Romans 8, if he's given his son for you, if he's given you the best thing that he has, the thing he treasures above everything else, you can be sure that he will not hold back from you anything worth having in the end. 
And Paul goes on, doesn't he, to say, if he's given his son, then you can be sure that nothing, nothing ever can separate you from God's love. Friends, hold on to that. Hold on to that. There's something else as well about this gift. It's the only gift that God has given for you to be saved. Think about it for a minute. God is saying, here is my son. I am given the most precious thing that I have so that you can be forgiven, that you can be made right with me, that heaven can be your home, that you can have a hope beyond death. You can be made right with me. I'm giving you my son who's going to suffer and die in your place. If there was any other way, do you think God would have done that? And that's something that often you encounter with people who do not believe in Christ. Say, yes, that's nice, but I want something else. I want something, an alternative. There isn't an alternative. But it's also something that we do as Christians, isn't it, sometimes? When we face guilt inside, isn't our tendency so very often to try and do something? Do something. To earn God's favor again. But there isn't anything you can do. And there's nothing you need to do. Christ has done it all. He is enough. And we, again, need to remember this. When we are weighed down with guilt as Christians, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We, remember, we thought earlier of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And we think of 1 John where it says, that blood that goes on cleansing. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us. God's gift to you. Finally then, as we close, what should be our response to these things? Well, surely it should be gratitude. You can never pay God back. But if you really understand this at all, we should be grateful, shouldn't we? And therefore we should want to do that which will bring joy to the heart of God. So what does God want from us? Well, the very next time God speaks from heaven, he tells us. On that mountain with Peter and James and John, when the glory of Christ is revealed clearly to them, God speaks again from heaven. And he says the same thing. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But he adds one last thing on the end. There's a command at the end. Listen to him. Listen to him. So here's my closing thought for you and I. Are we listening? Are we listening to God's word? Are we obeying? Because that's what pleases God. 